Welcome to Foster Career Experience, a podcast featuring interviews with people who've had experience with the foster care system about their lives, their career journeys, and their stories of navigating the workplace. We all bring unique histories with us in our jobs, and by understanding each other's experiences, we can make the workplace better for everyone. There are a lot of misconceptions about the foster care system, its goals, and how it works. So before I share the stories of foster care alumni that I interviewed, I wanted to start with a high-level primer on how the foster care system currently works in Texas. Because while there are some similarities, the foster care system actually varies from state to state. And to do this, I spoke with my friend and co-founder of a new foster care agency, Hannah. In 2017, Hannah lost her apartment and was laid off from her job at a foster care agency as a result of Hurricane Harvey. For the next two years, she lived at her parents' house to save money and dedicated all of her time to founding a new foster care agency that would be different from ones that she'd worked at in the past. It would provide wraparound support for both the children in care and their foster families. When I was in college, my practicum was working for um, an adoption agency, a domestic adoption agency. All I did was adoptions. Um, and in there, I was really excited. And I, I was very naive, but also really excited to work with adoptive mothers. I had this idea in my head. I was like, I can't wait to work to like wait to work with these women who have been you know, trying to conceive and can't and they want to expand their family. And I was so interested in the mindset and I remember telling that to the adoption staff there, and they're like, "I'm like, I want you to also think about the birth mothers that are having to make this decision." And in my privileged upbringing, I never even thought to consider what it would be like to not have your child in your home or choose or choose that. And so I really developed this compassion for these mothers uh, and what they were going through in those lives that they were, you know, choosing for their child. Um, and so it, it made me kind of humbled me in a way in, in viewing a different part of the world that I didn't grow up in. Um, and it kind of just like ignited this passion to work for, like to help these women and to help that community as best as I could. In her career, Hannah has worked at a therapeutic boarding school for teenage girls at the state's department of aging and disability services as a social worker at a foster care agency and, most recently, as a co-founder of a new foster care agency. While a child can enter foster care for a variety of reasons, the process for entering the system is generally the same. First, a concern about the child's biological home is usually called into the Texas Abuse Hotline, which is run by the Department of Family and Protective Services, also called DFPS for short. It could be about the condition of the child's home, concerns regarding the way a child looks, or something the child said. Next, DFPS launches an investigation to determine if the child is in imminent danger. This investigation could include interviewing the children who live in the home and viewing the home to see the child's surroundings. Uh, Just recently, um, Texas passed a law that the child must be in um, immediate danger or like imminent danger to actually remove the child from the home. Um, and if they're not, they can stay in the home. They're typically given, um, a plan to work on. The family's given a plan to like work through 
or the child is removed from the home. If the FPS determines that a child is in imminent danger, the child and their siblings are removed from the home and a placement broadcast is issued to all contractors throughout the state that are licensed to place foster children. It kind of just gives child's name, date of birth, or uh, their age, obviously, um, their sex, and any behaviors that they know of, um, and any like other information that would be helpful. Um, we typically don't get a lot, especially if it's a child that has that is just coming into foster care. There's not much information. Um, and so once the broadcast comes through and we have a match, like we have a family that's interested in that demographic or, you know, that fits their home, we'll call the home and ask them if they would be interested. They can tell us yes or no. And if they say yes, we call back the placement unit, which is the DFPS uh, placement unit. We say, hey, we have a home. We submit their home study and they make the final determination of, yes, this child can go to this home or no, we're looking you know, for something else. Um, and so through that, the child is then placed in the home and then monitored through um, our, like, our nonprofit agency. So we do case management for the home, case management for the child, um, and we communicate directly with CPS in the care of the child. Typically, they try to get get the child in a home ASAP. Okay. So for younger kids, um, they're a lot easier to place. Mm-hmm. Older kids are not as easy to place. Um, so basically, ages 12 and up are a little bit more difficult. So sometimes they will have to sleep in CPS offices or they'll have to find an emergency shelter, um, something like that to house the child until a more permanent placement is found. During the time the child is in the foster home, the state reimburses the foster family and the foster care agency at a daily rate. This rate is determined based on the anticipated level of service the state thinks the child will need. There are three typical leveling specifications for a child. Basic, moderate, and specialized. And each has a rate associated with it. A child requiring basic service is seen as having no major issues or medical needs. For basic service, the foster family receives around $24 to $27 a day, and the agency receives around $20 a day. A child requiring moderate service has been identified as having additional supervision needs or medical needs. Examples of this could include a child who may struggle with aggression or a child who has regular seizures or other health issues. For moderate service, the foster family receives around $45 a day, and the agency receives around $40. A child requiring specialized service is seen as having intense medical or behavioral needs. An example of this is a child who has cancer and needs additional supervision for their chemo treatments. For specialized service, the foster family receives around $56 a day, and the agency receives around $50. In addition to this, there are also rates for intense service and intense service plus, as well as different rates for residential treatment centers and group homes. Children in foster care also receive paid health care through Medicaid. However, Medicaid doesn't cover everything the child will need. And it's easy to see that in many cases, the amount of money given to the foster families won't be enough to cover their needs. And the amount of money given to the foster care agencies won't be enough to provide adequate care and support. 
It doesn't add up. We, I, I used to work at a previous foster care agency that only did that only um, employed based on the children that they placed, and so um, the the problem with that mindset is you get into kind of have a reverse effect where you're like either you want to continue to place specialized children or you want to continue to keep them at that level. There's no benefit for helping a child decrease their level. There's no benefit to that. So you have a reverse effect of like, well, if I keep them at a specialized level, I'll continue to get that money. So there's, there could be even like paper padding and like notes, like they're the foster parent notes can be a little bit high. I mean, those are people we try to weed out at the very beginning, but it's kind of human inclination to be like, well, if I, I, I've been working with this child who's specialized and now I've done all of this hard work to get them down to a basic or moderate level and my reward is less money and less services. And so it's kind of this backwards mindset that we're trying to navigate and to prevent our families from having to deal with that and for our staff suffering because of that, we have to solicit additional sources of income to support the rest of the additional services that we provide. Uh, we apply for a lot of grants, um, most mostly for specific things. Like our post adoption is funded by a grant. Our um, count, a lot of our counseling services is funded by a grant because that's not covered through our DFPS contract. Um, and then, uh, donations. So as a nonprofit, we absolutely, uh, re rely on donations from the community, um, from friends and family, and that's donations of any kind. Through donations and grants, the agency that Hannah founded is able to offer services that agencies who run on state funding alone cannot. Our previous places that I worked, we found that it's incredibly important to support the family, to support the family that is that has the child at the time. Um, and that is something that's going to actually really benefit the child to, um, you know, in their future and things like that. Um, but what we just what we sh have seen that has really been beneficial is um, crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. So 24 uh, seven, we have an on call number that they call. And if there's a behavioral crisis, we show up we're there. Um, right now, we've kind of implemented a 30-minute rule of where our families are. Um, we want to be there within 30 minutes so we can actually respond. And at some sometimes there's cases where we know a child is triggered by bedtime or triggered by getting ready for school. So we will come to their home an hour earlier than they wake up, and we will wait and be there just in case so we could try to see if there's any like triggers that, they're, that the family's not seeing or things that the child's not even realizing just to be those eyes and and really support that family to support that child. Um, that's one. So the 24-7 uh, crisis intervention. Another is we have our own counseling staff. We have a whole counseling wing um, at our agency. Uh, and the reason we found that to be important was because there were one of the biggest issues in foster care is disruptions. And disruption is when a child is in a home and something happens. Um, it's typically behavior-related, but the foster family says, I can't do this anymore, and the child has to move. And so there's, there's research that shows that with each child moving, 
again and again and again, sometimes 12, 14 different times in their time in care, their likelihood of a positive outcome in life is not good. Um, and so to really prevent that disruption, um, we found that having our own counselors, everybody having this TBRI mindset, and TBRI is trust-based relational intervention. That's one of the evidence-based uh, methods that we found to be really effective with our kids. And so everyone involved in the care of the child to have this TBRI mindset um, to really just wrap around that family, to wrap around that child. The agency also rolled out a new post-adoption support program for foster families who adopt the child who has been in their home. Historically, families receive little support after a child is adopted. You know, adoption can be a trigger for foster kids because there's it's another final thing that now they, you know, their biological family, they were ripped from their biological family to come into foster care, and now they're being adopted and they're never going to, like, that contact is completely shut off. It's a loss. So adoption can be incredibly triggering for kids. It's like they have to go through a stage of grief, like grieving the family and the life that would ha- that was or would have been. And now this new one that in most cases is very uncomfortable. It's different. It's doing things you've never done before. It's very unknown. The agency created the post-adoption support program based on a need that they were seeing. We were seeing so many referrals, which is at at a placement. The placement unit sends out a child that needs a home. That's the referral. And so we we were seeing so many referrals that would say um, this child had been adopted from foster care and then is now entering back into the system. Um, And that's either because the adoptive family gave them back or they themselves went through a CPS investigation and they have to be on a service plan or the child was in danger. Um, and so we were seeing it so much more and we were like, what is going on? So we found the need to kind of fill it. But with the home going through all of these issues after adoption and not expecting it, um, it really is. And that's the child and what they're dealing with. That's the home whose life has been disrupted, really, because yeah. when you add any person into your home, it's going to change the way things are typically done. Um, if that's a younger child, if that's an older child, if that's a home that has never had children, adding a child, it can, you know, it can affect your marriage. It can affect your relationships with your family, your relationships with your current biological children. Um, it really is meant to help every member of the family. However, it's important to note that adoption is generally not the goal or desired outcome of foster care, which is a common misconception. The goal of foster care is generally for the child to return safely to their biological family and home. The family that is going through the process of trying to either get the child back or um, going through the whole thing with CPS is that they have a plan that they have to work. And there's different goals. Sometimes it's um, clean drug tests for a year or a couple of months. And it's trying to find a job to support your family and getting stable housing. And there's certain goals that these that these um, biological families have to meet um, and kind of a service plan themselves that they have to work through. And every, typically every month or every quarter, they go before the court and they give a status update of where the parent is in that stage. Um, and so it has to get to the point where the service plan has not been met. Um, the goals are either continually not being met um, or uh, it could get to the point where a foster family or 
um, a kinship family can intervene in the child's case. And then it can go to like a trial hearing of, um, you know, who, where are the rights going to be um, for this child. But even when everything works as it's meant to, and the child is reunified with their family, there can also be negative outcomes. Some attribute this to the lack of support that families receive once their child returns. CPS, I think, is required to do a couple of check-ins, but the resources are no longer there. Um, The support is no longer there um, unless someone is going out of their way to continue to do that. Um, there are, there are options, like there are resources that are available to, to families, but if you don't know where that is, or you don't have someone that's checking in, it's like, you're caught up. Um, we had a, we, I know of a family who had their, their, their children taken back. Um, they were living with their father who was elderly at the time. Like they, and once he passed, she didn't have anyone else. And so she got her kids back and she was, she was with them, but she didn't have a driver's license. She didn't, she couldn't drive her to work unless she was taking the bus. And if the child like was sick, she couldn't do anything else, but like stay home and miss work. And there was no option for daycare because that costs a lot of money. And if you can't pay for it, you're the other option. If you don't have someone else that's helping you. And so it's, you're kind of, supported through the process, and then kind of dropped. Aging out of foster care as an adult is often associated with negative outcomes as well. While states have made a concerted effort to provide more support in recent years, there is still a gap in unmet need. When I I used to be a case manager, actually a foster care case manager, and um, having to work with my teens, even a little bit, like one or two, it wasn't many, but having to work with them and having them plan their future without being adopted. And now what's, you know, what are you going to do? And they're like, can you tell me what I'm supposed to, like, they don't know. They don't know. Um, and it's so big and confusing. Um, so it's that permanency is difficult um, to find for our teens. And we have so many teens in care right now that don't have a place. And so the option is to either wait for an adoptive family or age out um, or potentially find a permanent placement that's not adoption. You know, find like a, um, like a a family that you have, like you have a connection with, but they don't adopt. You may, you may not want to be adopted and at that age, you can say, I don't want to be adopted, but I would like to, you know, have a relationship with this family. And that's similar, or you age out and it's up to the child um, to kind of figure out what to do. Um, and so a lot of statistics, unfortunately, for children who do age out of care are not great. Um, I mean, there's, you can look at the statistics of what happens to children after they age out the majority are homeless, majority go to prison, um, majority end up in similar situations that they came out of. Um, and so, yeah, the aging out is something we're working through and helping our teens learn independent living skills to kind of negate those negative outcomes that can come forward if they choose to not be adopted. Okay, well, let's work on like getting you established in a community. Let's work on building community skills. 
Let's work on building any skills, social skills, uh, into like any kind of independent living to so you don't feel so overwhelmed. It's gonna happen. Like they're gonna be overwhelmed anyway, but you have something to fall back on. Or a child is in foster care when they are in care and after they leave. It seems obvious that we can be doing more to support families. So what is one thing that Hannah wishes people knew about foster care? I think I wish that people, just like everyday people, just had any inclination about what foster care is. Like, the, I think the biggest things is like the things that can put a child in foster care. Like it's not like it's not always just abuse. It's not always just neglect. Sometimes it's because um, a family member passed away, and or there's I mean, there's so many different reasons. I wish they would understand um, kind of that situation about it. Every time I hear like a child or a, a family has lost their rights to a child, like I have this bitter. It's I'm in this field now, and I have this like constant conflict in my mind of. This child lost a mother, but they're gaining a family. But this mother lost a child. Like there is no bittersweet for her. You know, there is no bittersweet for that father who lost the rights. There's no, it's, there is a bittersweet for the child, whether sometimes they realize it or not. But it's, it, it's very conflicting for me. Because even like for me, I can think like, Oh, you know, thank goodness we don't we don't lose this child. Like they stay with us and they stay in our community and that kind of thing. But I, it's very humbling of like a family lost their child, yeah. like all rights, all legal rights to their child. It's a constant conflict that I deal with almost on a daily basis. Of how do we, how do we put ourselves out of this job? How do we make ourselves? unnecessary unneeded like no longer needed because foster care is an answer to a something broken but how do we fix that when we fix it we don't need to be here anymore how do i make myself obsolete my job obsolete that's my goal that's our mission is to make ourselves no longer needed thanks for listening to this episode this podcast was created and hosted by me sam heimbach it was produced by Zachary Webb. Podcast art and website design are by Hanna Finvez of HMF Design. Music is from Soundstripe. This podcast was funded in part by the Baton Savoie Scholarship offered through the Human Dimensions of Organizations Master's Program at the University of Texas at Austin. You can learn more about this episode and others at fostercareerexperience.com. Thank you.